Welcome to No Ad, No Problem, a podcast devoted to college tennis and growing the game. Select episodes will be featured on the Great Shot podcast feed, but make sure you also subscribe to No Ad, No Problem on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Check us out on Twitter at JTweetsTennis and Instagram at No Ad, No Problem. I'm your host, John. Let's serve it up. Hey, everyone. We've officially entered the fall college tennis season. According to the ITA, there were 31 Division I fall events across the country this past weekend. Now, the fall season can be quite chaotic and confusing to follow, so I'm hoping to give a brief overview of the key results that caught my eye and other takeaways from this weekend's action. But before we dive in, what is the fall season? So, the fall season in college tennis is really focused on the individual, not the team dual season. So this means that schools are playing you know, individual singles and doubles tournaments, they're playing hidden duels against other schools, they're you know, partaking in round-robin events, and the overall fall season sort of has these two tentpole moments, which are the ITA-hosted events. That is the All-Americans in October and the Fall National Championships in November. And so all of these other events are really either the players have been doing training blocks over the summer, kind of honing their game for eventually the the dual season in the spring. But it's still a really great opportunity to play, for example, outside of your team's position. Maybe you play number five singles, but now you can get an opportunity to play another team's number one singles player or get more matches against non-conference opponent. All of this has big implications on your ranking because you can accumulate a lot of different matches over the fall season. You know, that ranking is used for your NCAA individual selection. While the fall season is very much a developmental period, it also has big implications for one, the individual players and their ranking and selection into the NCAA, and also for college tennis fans, is a great way to understand who is on these rosters, who is playing well, who maybe isn't playing as well, and sort of start to gauge kind of, you know, how could the spring season start shaping up. And one of the things that's been a little bit frustrating with this fall season is it's almost impossible to follow. So I mentioned that 31 fall events number. That should be taken directionally, but not accurately. So you have the you know, Knoxville Showdown hosted by the University of Tennessee on the men's side and the Milwaukee Tennis Classic, a both men's and women's events. Those are not in the 31 that are listed on the ITA's website right now. And let's say you did want to follow some of those 31 events. 19 of them do not have draws or results on the ITA website. And so essentially, if you want to follow anything related to college tennis in the fall beyond just a single team, you basically need to parse through Twitter, different schools' websites, maybe the ITA website, to get a full picture of what's going on. It's basically a full-on scavenger hunt. And one thing that I find extremely disappointing about that is that the ITA hasn't seemed to make big investments in making it easier for the average fan to follow the fall season. There have been some incremental improvements, like the website I mentioned, where you can get, you know, a somewhat accurate picture of the events that are happening. But basically, what we need is the completed matches, the players that were competing in those matches, the schools, and a link to the event. 
that would generously take about a week of work. And, you know, particularly since the ITA has been pushing moving the NCAA individual event to the fall, which would absolutely be in the ITA's best interest to incentivize players to play in their fall events and make that more of a lead up to the NCAA tournament. If that's the goal, then you need to do a better job in making the fall season not feel like amateur hour, right? And so much of this is on the shoulders of these schools, which don't have a lot of resources to support college tennis in the fall, because that is not the college tennis season. So for example, if you have an SID for a school, and they're assigned to men's and women's tennis, maybe they're not able to give as much time to you know, these fall events because they're focused on soccer, for example, which is a fall sport. Overall, I think it's disappointing that we still haven't gotten to a place that it's easy to follow the fall events. And I'm not sure why exactly that is, right? Because this has been something that has been known for for many years. And certainly if the ITA wants to make a significant push in increasing the visibility, the marketability of the fall season, it should have at least started this year. So with that said, I'll do my best to touch on the key results and takeaways that I think you should know about, sort of what I've parsed together through following all of the action uh, across all of the different mediums that I mentioned. So I'll first start with what I believe to be the best run men's event of the fall. And yes, I include the ITA All-American in that assessment. And that is the Southern Intercollegiate Championships hosted by Georgia in Athens. What I love so much about this event is, first, it has excellent promotion. So George does a great job promoting in advance this event on social media. It has very accessible scoring and live video. And Georgia is always posting the results for not just their own team, but for all teams that are playing. This year, they had Texas, USC, and the defending national champion, Virginia, in this event. And lastly, it's a really easy format for the average fan can understand. It essentially mirrors the dual format where they play doubles and then they play singles. There are some slight format tweaks like they play a doubles pro set instead of a single set. And you might see, you know, players from other schools maybe slot in at lines five, six, seven, depending on how many players each of these respective schools brought in. So overall, I think the biggest takeaway here from the uh, Athens action is that this was Ethan Quinn's debut. So Ethan Quinn is a redshirt freshman at Georgia. He comes in this year as the number one newcomer in the ITA rankings. He made the Kalamazoo finals, and he made the second round of the U.S. Open qualifying most recently. And he lived up to that ranking and those accolades every bit. He went 3-0, over the weekend, beating Elliot Spiziri of Texas, Jeffrey von der Schulenberg of Virginia, and the current number one player in the country, Stefan Dostinich. This was Ethan's, I believe, third win over Dostinich um, since the summer. And I think, you know, coming in, we knew that Ethan Quinn was one of the best players in college. So that's not necessarily a surprise. What I think has been really impressive about his performance this weekend and something I've noted in the past is he does an excellent job of winning really close matches. We saw this when he beat 
the defending NCAA singles finalist August Holmgren, saving, gosh, it must have been like five or six match points. Uh, he did the same thing this weekend. I thought he started really nervously against Elliot Spaziri in that first match. He went down a set and a break and still found his way back to win that match. So overall, I thought it was extremely impressive performance from Ethan Quinn, despite the fact that he shaved his head <laughs> and is no longer rocking the, uh, the blonde locks that uh, we've gotten familiar with. The second player that I thought had a really strong weekend here in Athens was Elliot Spaziri. So Elliot Spaziri plays number one for Texas and last season really struggled with a left wrist injury that required him to slice backhands the entire match. And he had surgery on that wrist this summer and he's still relying heavily on the slice backhand. So much of what I watched this weekend, he was still not coming over the backhand side, which is obviously a pretty big hindrance for him. But the serve, the forehand, his net capabilities were all working. You know, Spaziri went 2-1 and one on the weekend with his only loss uh, in a close three-setter, as I mentioned, to Ethan Quinn. He also knocked out number four player in the country in Yaki Montez of Virginia in straight sets. So those were two players I thought really stood out. I think taking a step back and just assessing these teams overall, you know, it's still very clear that Virginia, defending national champion, is very much a tier one contender for the NCAA title. Both Texas and Georgia were missing a player from their top three. Uh, Pierre Bailey from Texas was not playing this weekend, and I believe Phil Henning of Georgia was playing Davis Cup for South Africa, so he was also not in attendance. These are two schools that are very much in Tier 2 contender for me, and USC did appear to be at full strength in terms of the players that they sent, and I think where, unless they bring in players in January, they are very much a Tier 3 contender uh, at this point in time. So moving on to one of the other big events uh, that I was following this weekend was the Milwaukee Tennis Classic. And one thing that makes this event special is there is a direct tie-in here with one of those two tentpole ITA events I mentioned. So the winner of the Milwaukee Tennis Classic receives direct entry into the ITA National Fall Championships in November. And the key takeaway here on the women's side was that USC dominated. So both Naomi Chung uh, and Maddie Sig, they took the doubles title together and they faced off in the final with freshman Maddie Sig taking home the trophy. Ironically, it's a little bit of a repeat of last year where the North Carolina duo of Fiona Crawley and Riley Tran also took home the doubles title and then Tran beat Crawley in the singles final. And so for me, looking at the, these results, I mean, Maddie Sig comes in as the number six ITA newcomer. She's absolutely affirmed that ranking with this result. Obviously, as I mentioned, she'll earn direct entry into the National Fall Championships later this fall in San Diego. And overall, this is a great sign for USC. USC struggled at points in the season last year, particularly without Naomi Chung, who was hurt for much of last season. So now with her healthy, the addition of one of the best freshmen in the country, Maddie Sig, also joined by number one player in the country, Aaron Cayetano, and Snow Han, who has had an excellent summer on the pro tour, you know, you really see USC's top four forming. And 
those four players would make up one of the stronger top fours in the country. I think the thing to watch for the remainder of the fall for the USC women will be who fills in at five and six. You know, they've brought in freshman Emma Charney, who won you know a separate event at the Hall of Fame hosted by William and Mary. So she's certainly a contender to slot in there at five and six. Uh, so that's what I'll be looking out for for the USC women over these next few weeks and months. And obviously really looking forward to seeing Maddie Sig's success uh, at both All-Americans and then later on at the uh, national championships in November. So the next event that I was watching closely was the Knoxville Showdown. So this is one that is hosted by the University of Tennessee. They bring in teams like Columbia, North Carolina, and Middle Tennessee. And it's a little bit of a hodgepodge event. You kind of see like, okay, maybe it's four players from Tennessee playing four players from North Carolina, and we'll slot in a few other players at kind of the the five and six lines. You know, overall, these fall events uh, often have pretty fluid structures, um, except something like the Milwaukee Tennis Classic, which is just kind of a, a straightforward draw that they play through. And so one of the big intriguing things about the Knoxville showdown was Tennessee. Tennessee has brought in five new faces that we talked about on the Transfer Palooza pod. That includes uh, Blaze Bicknell, who transferred from Florida and was ineligible to play for Tennessee this past season. So he technically made his debut the weekend before the Tennessee men played an event in Orlando, but this was, uh, you know, his debut against some elite competition in college, and he performed quite well. He had a really solid weekend. He went two and one on the weekend with wins over, you know, number ten Alex Kotzen of Columbia and number sixty one Roca of Middle Tennessee State. You know, I mentioned Alex Kotzen. He was the highest ranked player here at the Knoxville Showdown at number ten. He had a pretty disappointing weekend. He was zero and three. Uh, kind of at that number one singles flight. So that's a disappointing result for him. I think overall, Columbia showed a lot of strength, particularly with Michael Zhang's debut. He is the you know 2022 Wimbledon junior boys finalist. Uh, so he has had a successful entrance into college tennis. Certainly we'll be watching for him, probably bouncing between that one and two position with Alex Kotzen. And so similar to the USC women, you start to see a top four merging with Tennessee, right? They have Johannes Monday, who has n- is not playing the fall, but is a, clearly a top 10 player, Blaze McNell, Emil Hud, and Shinsuke Mitsui, right? You have those four players, and then you have a whole host of faces that are, will be competing for five and six. And while we talk a lot about Tennessee, obviously they're the host of this tournament, you know, the player of the tournament for me was actually Ryan Segerman of North Carolina. We talked about Ryan Segerman in our transfer episode as he and Princeton teammate Carl Poling transferred as graduate students to North Carolina, and Segerman went 3-0 and on the weekend at that number one flight. He knocked off Alex Kotzen, Blaze Bicknell, and Roca of Middle Tennessee State. I thought this was an excellent performance from Segerman who has enrolled at North Carolina's business school, as we've seen with players like Bar Botzer. You don't necessarily have to be playing the fall season. And so for those that aren't as worried about maybe their individual ranking, oftentimes we see graduate transfers not play the fall season. That was not the case for Segerman. He had a great debut. He'll His ranking will continue to rise 
And that's great news for North Carolina fans who are still kind of searching for the pieces in the post-Blumberg era. Brian Cernock, who played number one for North Carolina men last season, was off at Davis Cup, serving as a hitting partner for the U.S. men. So that's an excellent experience for him. And it looks like Sagerman could slot in really nicely at the number two position. Not a huge surprise. He did play number one for Princeton last season. Uh, but this is a great sign that he's still playing really excellent tennis. All right, and so the last big fall event that I was focused on this weekend was the Furman Tennis Classic. So this is uh, a classic, no pun intended, of the fall season that really kicks it off for the women. It's hosted by Furman, and you get a lot of the Carolina region schools playing this event. So UNC, Duke, Wake Forest, South Carolina, Vanderbilt, Georgia Tech. And the way that this event is structured is... They essentially have eight to nine different flights. And so you kind of, if you're sending players here, you kind of put them in an order, right? Of Hey, here's my flight one singles player. Here's my flight two singles player. And then they compete in, I believe, an eight person draw. And then they kind of go through and um, and play like a normal tournament. I think so one takeaway here for me was that Duke sort of underwhelmed. So you had Cam Mora, Chloe Beck, uh, grad transfer, Brazgalova of Penn, kind of all losing in the first round. And then you have grad transfer, Brianna Schwetz from Princeton, and freshman Katie Codd losing in the second round, both to Vanderbilt freshmen. And outside of the Furman Tennis Classic, you know, had Georgia Drummy, who was playing the Milwaukee event, and she actually retired in her first round. So a lot of expectations on Duke this season, particularly given the three grad transfers that they've brought in, Katie Codd coming in as a freshman, and not a great weekend for uh, for the Blue Devils. I mentioned those two Vanderbilt freshmen, so Bridget Stammel and Sonia McAvey, both won their respective flights, which is a really great sign for Vanderbilt, who was looking for some new life, I would say, after really struggling these past few seasons Uh, and not kind of operating at the same caliber that they were in kind of the 2015-2016 era. Then the last takeaway for me from the Furman Tennis Classic was that the talent and the depth of the North Carolina women is just wild. So they did not send freshman and number one U.S. recruit Reese Brantmeyer to this event, but they played pretty much everyone else, and... They basically all made their respective single flight finals. Unfortunately, UNC was the only team to give walkover in the finals. So both uh, Elizabeth Scotty and Riley Tran gave a walkover in their finals, which isn't great, particularly, you know, giving a walkover at the flight one singles final uh, to Sarah Hamner. You know, that's a match that Hamner would love to play. We'd love to see it as fans. So I'm not sure if North Carolina had a a bus to catch from Greenville to Chapel Hill or what that is, but that's, you know, not, not a great look. But for me, the headliner here was Abby Forbes. So we talked about Abby Forbes in the past. She is a grad transfer from UCLA. You know, she has been ranked as high as number two in the country. And she now, like Ryan Segerman, is starting her MBA at North Carolina. And it would have been very easy for her to skip the fall season. She has nothing to prove in college tennis, and to be honest, I thought she would skip the fall event. She didn't play it all over the summer. You know, it would have been very easy and understandable had she focused on kind of getting settled at a new school, 
as a grad student in a rigorous MBA program and kind of pick things up for the dual season. But that does not seem to be the case at all. She steamrolled through her flight two singles draw. I mean, she won her last two matches, one and one, both times. That's a really dangerous sign for every other team in women's tennis. At best, you were hoping that maybe Forbes comes in a little rusty in January, February. But if she doesn't, you're looking at, you know, Forbes, Brantmeyer, Scotty, Crawley, Tran, Tangillig. That is an extremely deep, uh, a deep roster. I mean, Fiona Crawley made the NCAA singles semifinals and she might be playing four, five. So uh, pretty dangerous for uh, the rest of women's tennis. And then lastly, just a quick note uh, on the heels of winning the junior U.S. Open doubles championships, uh, Ozan Barris of Michigan State has continued his strong play. He knocked off uh, Daniel DeJong, number 15 ranked player, and Pepperdine, number one. Arguably, maybe a slight that uh, Ozan was not included in the newcomer list, but he's certainly making his newcomer presence known with his, his results down at the Kentucky event. So that's pretty much a recap of the week's results and the action that really caught my eye. A few upcoming events to call out for this week. So the Texas Regional Championship uh, for the women kicks off, and these are the feeder events into the National Fall Championship in November. So there are all of the regional events throughout the country, and then the winner and the finalist of those events earn direct entry into the national event in San Diego this November. The second event that is upcoming this week is the Fall Rank Spotlight, hosted by North Carolina State. And for all intents and purposes, this is probably the third biggest tournament for the women of the fall behind All-Americans and the National Fall Championships. It is an absolutely loaded draw. It was last year. I assume it will be this year. And it's a great precursor to All-Americans, which actually kicks off the following weekend. So really looking forward to the action there. You always get a ton of really great matches, a lot of matches that, you know, help players ranking in the long term. And then the third collegiate event that I'm looking out for this weekend is the Harvard Chowder Fest. Unclear who's playing this, but it wins the best name of fall events, so I just had to include it. On the pro side, things to watch out for. So the uh, Texas Tech in Lubbock is hosting both a men's and women's 15K and then there is also a men's 15K hosted by the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. So really awesome to see three different 15K events hosted on college campuses uh, this coming week. Given that there are events in both Lubbock and Fayetteville, you'll see a lot of really good opportunities for collegiate players to get um, ATP or WTA points in these events. And then on the higher end of the ITF spectrum, there is a 60K in Berkeley. Typically, you'll see um, you know, Cal women's tennis players or other California women's tennis players earn wild cards to qualifying or main draw or get in directly. So hopefully that recap helps you kind of touch back down with college tennis, makes it a little easier to follow the fall chaos, kind of know what to be watching out for for this coming week. 
And let me know if you think I missed any results on Twitter at jtweetstennis or Instagram at noadnoproblem. Give us a follow on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and we'll be back more next week to talk more college tennis. Thanks, everyone.